0: Well, good morning, everyone. Our passage this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. Now, this letter was written to a group of people in the city of Thessalonica. If Paul had walked the earth today and visited Buffalo and had formed a church and now was writing to that church, he might have written the book of 1 Buffalonians. But he did not, he came to Thessalonica instead. And the backstory of this letter comes from Acts 17, when Paul and Silas come to the city and in under a month have won a large number of people to Christ and quickly formed a church. And so I've included this section in Acts 17 as part of our reading this morning. So if you would stand with me as we approach the text, we will start with our prayer of commitment coming from Deuteronomy 6. Say it with me, uh, or excuse me, say it after me. Hero Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. We'll start in Acts 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other new Thessalonica believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And now, with that backstory in mind, 1 Thessalonians 1 6 through 10. Friends, you became imitators of, of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us of how you turned, you turned to God from idols and serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. You may be seated. Now, if you're a parent or a caretaker, did you saw, survive this last week? Everyone okay? Everyone, everyone survive? Now, we enjoy having both of our kids home, but usually it starts off well, You know, Monday and Tuesday are good, but by the end of the week, they start to get sick of each other, like they're the only face they see, particularly in the winter months when you can't go outside, and it starts to get a little hairy, and you turn into a referee at times. Now, one of the main sources of conflict in our house is that our youngest son, Micah, wants to do everything Mia wants to do, who's our older daughter. He follows her around, he wants to do, she gets into something, he gets into something. She goes and does something else, he goes and and does it. And it just drives her crazy. And part of it is their personality. Mia likes to be alone, she likes to play by herself, and so she will often do an activity in which she's setting up a dollhouse or drawing a picture or building blocks by herself. And Micah will get this little brother spider sense that Mia is doing something without him, and he'll start the hunt, and he'll look everywhere for her. And when he finds her, he wants to play. And his play is much different than her play. She'll be doing something quietly, building something, setting something up. And he'll walk in and say, let's play. Bam! <laughs> mom! Dad! Usually, Mom! And we, we, we know it's annoying. And we, we, we sympathize with Mia. And we tell her, Mia, we know, we know it's bad. But we try, to, we try to teach her. We try to tell her, Mia... The reason he does that is because he thinks you're so cool. Like he legitimately he, he you are like his hero. He looks up to you. He wants to do everything you do. He wants he watches you. He wants to be like you. He looks up to you. And it helps a little. But we tell her you have someone who's imitating you. You have someone that's following you. Like I said, he watches you. He wants to be like you. He looks up to you. Do you have a Christian mentor? Do you have someone that you look up to, that you watch, that you want to be like? Have you ever had uh, someone in your life or, some, or people, different people in your life that you look back on and you say, that person or those people were instrumental in walking me through faith. I want you to do something for a second. If you could uh, grab a pen or there's pencils in your front and find a sheet of paper, whether it's a connection card or a bulletin or something. And what I have you do is uh, just think for a moment and write down the name or the names of those people. Who are the people in your life that were instrumental in your walk in faith. We're instrumental in you learning more about who Jesus was. If you do, just take a moment and just write their names on a piece of paper. It could be a connection card, it could be a bulletin, something like that. Just write your names. And I want to take just one minute, and as you're thinking, as you're writing, I just want you to reflect on what they mean to you and what they've done for you. So just take a moment. We're just going to take a break for a second. And just for a minute, reflect on who they are, what they mean to you, and what they have done for you. Go ahead. Our passage this morning is all about imitation. Verse 6 provides a new thought. It's a break in the, in the flow, in the structure of the letter. And in verse 6, there is this main verb that everything else for the rest of the chapter hangs on. And it says this You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Everything we're about to say hinges on this concept that you have become imitators of us and of the Lord. Everything else that follows rests on this premise. And what Paul does in this structure, in this little uh, uh, grouping of verses here, is he uses a structure, a biblical structure. Now, this is your nerdy Greek, uh, nerdy uh, biblical theology word of the day, but he uses a structure called chiastic parallelism. Chiastic parallelism. And basically what it is, is it is a structure in which it's pointing to a main point. And what it does is it gives you the first verse, it gives you the first premise, and it parallels the first premise with the very last verse in the section. And so the first verse and the last verse are parallel. And then, as you read, the second verse is a new thought. That hinges on the old, but then is paralleled with the second to last verse. And what it's doing is it's a structure that's all building to the middle. The middle is the point. And so you begin to read it, and there's this literal arch that flows. You begin to read it, and it builds on each other, and it arches, and then it parallels the same thing that was said back around. And it's supposed to create this movement towards the central idea at the end. And so the structure, if you can get your head around it, is be imitators of us and of the Lord. And now I will create this chiastic parallelism, this structure to point, to move us towards the central idea of why it's so important to do that. In 2000, there was this movie that came out called Memento. And I would not uh, advocate for seeing it, uh, I think it was rated R, it was, I would not advocate for seeing it, but it was noteworthy because it, it used this chiastic parallelism in order to have the movie. And it was, it was something no one had ever seen before. What happened was is that they showed you the first scene of the movie. And so you watched the first scene of the movie like you would any other movie, but then the next scene was actually the very last scene in the movie. And all of a sudden, there was these people and characters, and you're like, whoa, what happened? I've never, w- what just went on? It feels like we just skipped an hour and a half, and you did. They showed you the last scene. And then after the last scene is over, they took you to the second, the, the second scene. And then they moved you to the second to last scene. And they kept doing that over and over and over and over until we get to the middle, till the two ends ran into each other. And that was the point of the movie. That was the climax, the apex of the movie. And all the while, you're just going... What is happening? But it was all driving towards the middle. That's what's going on here in this passage. Paul is driving us to a middle concept. He starts by giving us the thesis. You became imitators. And then he moves the structure. And so what I've done is I've used sort of some of these signposts, these highly produced signposts. Very expensive. Because I'm visual... And it helps me see the movement. And so we're going to start with verse 6, the second part of verse 6, and we'll see the movement and we'll move towards the middle and then we'll ask some questions of ourselves. And so he starts with this. You've become imitators of us and of the Lord. How? How have you done this? By welcoming the message in spite of severe suffering and with joy given by the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about two practices Of of imitation, and we see it here in this first verse: you imitated us because you saw our suffering and you saw our joy. So the first practice that we see of of imitation, if we want to have people imitate us, if we want if we want to look at others and know what to imitate, the first thing they say is that you saw our suffering. And so the practice of imitation is it turns to suffering. It turns to suffering. Now in the backstory, in Acts 17, I even need to take you another backstory. So this is the backstory of the backstory. It's in Acts 16. So the the chapter before the one we just read in Acts 16 is the backstory of what Paul and Silas were doing before they got to Thessalonica. Does that make sense? So we're now in Acts 16 to get to Acts 17 to then get to 1 Thessalonians. But in Acts 16, there is this story, and they're in Philippi, and they're doing the same thing they're doing it now. They're trying, to, they're trying to bring the gospel there. They're trying to raise churches. And there's this girl who is possessed with a spirit And she's able to tell the uh, uh, fortune. She's able to see into the future and tell the fortune. The spirit enables her to do that. And the problem is is that when she sees her, her her spirit is turned towards them. She's attracted to them. And she begins to follow them and pester them everywhere they go. It says in the text that for days that they're walking, and this girl does nothing but shouts out, these men are servants of the Most High God. These servants are the most, uh, servants of the Most High God. Kind of would get annoying after a while. And so finally, I, I, can, I can see Paul. Finally, Paul is so fed up with this girl. He turns to her and he says, in the name of Jesus, come out. And it does immediately. Like, he's just like, like I've never heard of like, uh, doing things in the name of God out of annoyance, but here we are. This is, it seems as though Paul, out of annoyance, uh, uh, fosters the name of Jesus uh, to get the spirit out of this girl. Now, the trouble is, is that her owners were actually making a profit off of this fortune-telling ability they were charging people to come and she would give them their fortune and now that the spirit is gone her value plummets and this enrages the owners they've lost a valuable asset and so they cause this great scene they cause this great uh, uh, their anger and they cause this great uh, uh, riot in order to punish these two for doing it take a look in Acts 16 here's the rest Uh, Here's the rest of the story. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. It's estimated that it took Paul and Silas two weeks. Now, we'll get to the rest of the story, because the rest of the story goes is that they break out of prison, that there's this earthquake that comes and opens all the jail cells, and they escape, but because of such the tension in the city, they they have to flee immediately. And we know that the next city they go is Thessalonica. Now, it's understood that it would take about two weeks to get from Philippi, where they are in this story, to Thessalonica, two weeks, which means if you are severely beaten, if you're beaten with rods and severely flogged, you're not coming back from that fully in two weeks, are you? I wouldn't think so. My guess is that they walked into the city of Thessalonica with the wounds on their face talk about a first impression. Hey guys, want to hear about Jesus? You can see it on our faces. These people knew immediately what they were going to get themselves into. They could see it on their faces. The cuts and bruises would no doubt have still been visible and they were wearing suffering on their face. We recognize to follow Jesus means to turn towards suffering it means that in this world if we choose the way of Jesus there are other ways and other systems and other organizations and other cultures that are bent in the other way. And to choose another way is to choose the way of suffering. And so if we want to be imitators of Jesus, if we want to be imitators of those who are following Jesus, we know we will have to turn our face to suffering, but there's another practice. It turns towards suffering, but it also waits with joy. I love that comparison and that contrast with severe suffering with joy. We read in the Acts 16 story this, story this. We remember we talked about that uh, jailer, that jailer that uh, that locked them up and kept them prisoner. But when the cells broke open, all of a sudden, and the, and the inmates are running out, all of a sudden that jailer's in a lot of trouble because the consequences, if you're a jailer, of letting your prisoners escape is death itself. This is why in the text it says in Acts 16, he was so distraught over this that he was going, he was suicidal. He was going to commit suicide because he knew the punishment for it. And instead, Paul and Silas stop him and lead him to Jesus. And then the jailer brings them to his home, and it says this. About midnight, well, here's the story. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. And then the earthquake happened, and it said in Acts 34 the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. It's amazing that in the midst of suffering, again, you have been abused. You have been beaten with rods. You have been severely flogged. And that very night, you are sitting in stocks in an inner jail cell, and you are singing. You're singing. And the jailer who is suicidal, who had oriented his life around a whole other way, is brought before Jesus, he gives his life to him. He brings them in to his house for a meal, and the text says that he was filled with joy. You're filled with joy when you know the outcome. See, Paul and Silas can sing in a jail cell severely beaten because they know that's not going to be the end of the story. They know that's not going to be it. That's not going to be where it ends. They know there is a future coming, an outcome coming that will make all of this worth it. Because when you know the future outcome, you can endure the present suffering. When you know the future outcome, you can endure the present suffering. I have my roommate in college, uh, his name is Josh, and he is a native Philadelphian, born and raised uh, Eagles fan. And if you didn't know, the Eagles won the Super Bowl a few months ago. It's the first time that franchise has ever won the Super Bowl. First time you'd ever seen uh, a championship like that before. And he was absolutely elated. And so I tell him, I was like, tell me about it. Like, Walk me through the like. How did it go? And he said, man, it was miserable in the middle of the game. Because you're so nervous and you're so like every play hangs on the balance and something good happens and you're ecstatic and then something bad happens and you're you're uh you're totally demoralized and things like that and this was not a blowout game this was a come down to the wire type of game and he explained just like the a roller coaster of emotions that come and uh, i don't as a sports fan that's to me as close to suffering as you can get And I asked him because we as Bill fans don't know what it's like to experience big games. So when I heard that, I was like, tell me, like, what does it feel like to actually care about a game that's of importance, that matters? He said the experience of watching the game was excruciating. But in the end, they won. And the elation that he experienced at the end made it all worth it. And he said this, you know, the funny thing is that I've watched the game back now. It's fun now. I go back and I actually watch the game again. And he said, it's a totally different experience when you watch it the second time because you know who's going to win in the end. And so I'll watch them throw an interception or fumble the ball or have a bad play. And I remember what it was like to watch that play the first time and how I was so, my stomach was in knots watching it over there. But it's not that way anymore. Now I watch it, and it's actually part of the journey. It's actually part of the story. It's actually part of what makes the game great. Because I know the ending, and I know the outcome. Friends, when we know the outcome, the present suffering, the present hardship, the present things that come, doesn't sting as much. One of the songs we sing, one of our old hymns, O Death, Where Is Thou Sting? Because on Easter morning, we knew the outcome. And now that sting, this doesn't quite hurt as much. Now this is not to underplay suffering, and this is not to say that it, it shouldn't be hard, or it shouldn't be stressful, or it shouldn't be difficult in any way, but the sting is gone. We can wait with joy. Because we know the outcome. Paul and Silas turn to suffering and wait with joy. And the Thessalonians imitate these practices as well. Because when we get to the other one, we discover that this is exactly then what the Thessalonians are doing. He said, we were suffering, we turned to our suffering... And we waited with joy. And now all the way at the last verse, in verse 10, it says this, Then they tell, they tell how you turn to God from idols and serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. You see, when you turn from the idols... When you turn, and Thessalonians was like any other Greek city, it had its gods, it had its idols, it had its things that you bowed down to, systems of oppression, systems and organizations and institutions that were all bent on serving the one true God, Caesar, and serving the multitude, the the plurality of gods around them. And so to turn from the idols and to God meant to turn to suffering. And they did and they suffered badly because of it but they were looking like the ones they were imitating but we also know that says that they waited for his son from heaven you see they knew the outcome as well they waited for god they waited for christ to come back And so in their present suffering, as they are turning from their idols and turning to everything that wants to keep the status quo, they waited with joy because it was all going to be worth it in the end. So our first rung, our first ring is a practice. What are the practices of imitation? It's that we turn to our suffering, but we wait With hope and with joy, we wait. With hope and with joy, we find this in this next rung. We find that there's a product of it. So if those are the practices of it, there's actually things that come out of it—results, products—that we see that that we can we can look to and understand. You see, because the first product is of imitation is a model. Paul says it too. You did these things, and so you became a model. The practices you engaged in produce something, something is a result of it. And the first result is you became a model. By definition, a model is a system or thing that is used as an example to follow or to imitate. A model gives a visual people can see and therefore emulate. That is why we call it a role model. Someone becomes a role model. Right, we could talk about all the theory and theology and abstract concepts of love and peace and justice and joy, but it's another thing to then see it tangibly, flesh and blood right there, and then a model for what this actually looks like. Now, in our Acts 17 passage, we read that one of these new Thessalonian believers is named Jason. And notice the similarities between Jason and Paul and Silas in the chapter before just to remember in Acts 16 it says that the owners of the slave girl seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities and later then in the le- in the later chapter in 17 it reads this they rounded up some of the bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob and started a riot in the city and they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some of the believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. In both stories, a swell rises up in the marketplace and they are dragged before the authorities. Jason is following the model of Paul and Silas. He is using their example as a template for what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so Paul and Silas get dragged out into the marketplace. Well, guess what, Jason? What does it look like in your context, in your place, to follow Jesus? You're going to do it too, and he does. And so a model is formed, a visualization of what this looks like. But there's also another product of this. If one is a model, the other is an outbreak. It spreads, and it moves. Now, our family has been abnormally sick this last year and this last winter, and for a while we wondered why until we realized this is Mia's first year of kindergarten. She is going into the cesspool, that is the public school system, and bringing home all sorts of lovely things to our house, and so we as a family are sort of enduring the outbreak of this new uh, pool of germs that we've never experienced before. Somebody gives it to Mia. Mia gives it to us. And then if you all aren't careful, how many of you spend enough time with me this winter? It's a gift that keeps on giving. I remember a few weeks ago, we were in a meeting, and uh, Elio Diaz was there, and I was kind of telling him about this, and I said, yeah, right now, you know, we've, we've got the flu in our house, and as soon as I said the word flu, he physically leaned back. <laughs> we had spent, we'd spent probably an hour in the same room together. I was like, yeah, you know, we're, all, I don't have it, but you know, we're all, you know, we're all fine, and he's like, he said, you have, you have the flu? I was like, well, I don't, but our family doesn't, like, it, literally, there was like a physical, like, lean back, right, because Because you recognize, and he recognizes, that this thing spreads. Elio, did you get it? Were you okay? He was up. Thumbs up. He didn't get it. That's good. Well, that ruins my analogy. Thanks a lot, Elio. I I wanted, you needed to get it, so it passes on. But no, we understand it passes on. It spreads. It's an outbreak that happens. As you engage in the practices of imitation, others begin to imitate you when you are living differently but doing it with such joy and peace people take notice and it spreads and now paul says we did it and you did it and now believers in macedonia and archaea are doing it too it's spreading this thing is moving we were engaging in these practices and you then were engaging in those practices over there Then all of a sudden, this model began to form. The products of imitation, a model began to form. That is spreading. There's an outbreak that's happening. We find then here in the last verse, the parallelism. It's true of them as well. It's true for the Thessalonians as well. Paul is still speaking here, but he says, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves, and the they there, is those Macedonians and Archeans they the people that are imitating you your disciples the one that are looking to you on how to they are telling us themselves of what kind of reception you gave us it's spreading this thing and so you practiced it you you looked at us as we turned to suffering and we joy and you did it too And now there's a model for it that's breaking out here. It broke out from you. And now we're hearing how it's breaking out to others because they're now talking about it. They're now reporting it. And they're reporting to us, and they're likely reporting it in other places. It's breaking out. And it's driving us in and in and in until we reach the pinnacle of imitation. And the pinnacle of imitation comes... In verse 8, and as a result, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archea, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Everywhere. Paul and Silas, the Thessalonians, the Archaeans and the Macedonians, they're reporting to other people and now it spreads and rings out everywhere. Everywhere. The pinnacle of imitation is that the gospel, gospel rings out everywhere. If you were here on Easter last week, you no doubt remember the bell and the organ that were used as an illustration point. How the the air blows up through these giant pipes and how big they are and how massive they are. We rang the bells. We played the organ as a visual audio Representation and illustration of the power and the beauty and the stirring that happens when the gospel rings out everywhere. But we must not forget the context of it. We must not forget the context of the passage. It rings out everywhere when we are willing to imitate people in Christ and then be intentional about bringing others along in the faith That's how the message rings out. It's not in Easter dresses and attendance at church. Those are fine. But the gospel rings out when we're willing to look to somebody else who's further ahead and imitate them in Christ and then look behind us and say, who can I help bring forward in Christ? when we do that when we imitate when we model when we outbreak when we turn to our suffering and when we wait with joy the gospel rings out everywhere we turn to suffering and we wait with joy and you turned to suffering and you waited with joy for us you became a model and it broke out and then from you They became a model, and it's breaking out more. And all the while, the crescendo of it all is that the gospel rings out. The gospel rings out. That's their journey. So now let's make the journey ourselves. And I'll invite the band to come up as we close. As we think about this journey for them, as we think about this journey for Paul and Silas, as we think about this journey with the Thessalonians, we must never stop there, but we must ask now, what is our journey? How are we part of this story? And so just like them, their practices become our practices. The practice of imitation is to turn to suffering and to wait with joy. Now, suffering is tough in our context because we do not often experience active persecution. But there are subtle, quiet ways our allegiance to King Jesus comes at a cost. When you refuse to jam your schedule or jostle to get noticed, you suffer the loss of importance. And when you decline to be a gossip, a slander, and a busybody, you suffer the loss of being in the know. And when you're humble, you suffer the loss of control. Are you turning to suffering? In whatever way that looks like in our context. For them, it was dragging out and beating. That's not us. That's likely not going to happen to you. But where, when you choose to say, I'm going this way and not that way anymore, where does that way rise up to stop you? Where are you turning towards suffering? But the suffering comes with immeasurable joy because we know how it ends and we can endure present suffering because we know the future outcome. So do you live a life with joy? Do you live a life that is attractive? Would people look at you and say, I want to be like that? Or are you combative, pretentious, judgmental, unkind? Do you wait with joy? And the product of our intimidation is a model and an outbreak. Who are you a role model to? Who are you a role model to? Or to ask it another way, look down at the names written on your paper again. Who in this room wrote your name? Who in this area would write your name? Who in this world? would write your name are you a model to somebody else and is it breaking out could you trace it back to you and then could you trace it back to the next person and the next person and the next person I asked you to think about what that person meant to you what those people on your sheet did for you because the gospel rang out in your life in part because of them. Will you now have the gospel ring out in your lives to somebody else? Will you turn to suffering? Will you wait with joy? Will you model what this looks like to somebody else? to multiple people and have an outbreak break out into your life so that the gospel would ring out everywhere. Because like the organ that blew out last Sunday, you are called to be an instrument that rings out the gospel everywhere. And it's empty air unless you're willing to practice the turning to suffering and the waiting with joy. It's empty air unless you're willing to be a model and an outbreak it's empty air unless our lives are the instrument that plays it in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation look down at that name where is your name may the gospel ring out everywhere let's pray Jesus, we are overwhelmed by the impact we can have with others as we hold on to that name in our hands. We are overwhelmed that you chose somebody else to be so instrumental in our life. And so, God, where are you calling me where are you calling us to be instrumental in somebody else's life? God, may we turn from our suffering. May we turn to suffering. May we wait with joy. May we be a model. May we be an outbreak. May that gospel ring out everywhere. Thank you that we get to be